Hey friends, Alan Duty here, preaching pastor at New Life. We're delighted to bring you this sermon from our Sunday gathering. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net. Thank you and enjoy the following message. Throughout history, all kinds of unusual tactics have been used in military combat to gain an advantage over the enemy. One of my favorite stories is when the U.S. Army employed inflatable tanks to mislead the Axis powers into thinking that the invasion of Normandy would not occur there, but further north than it was. But I think one of the strangest of all time occurred in 525 B.C., when the Persian leader Cambyses was about to engage the world's most powerful army at the time, the Egyptian army at Pelusium. And the Egyptians, as you may know, revered cats. They basically worshiped them. And so Cambyses came up with this plan to have his entire army paint cats on their battle armor and on their shields. And then when the battle began, he released hundreds of cats into the front lines so that the Egyptian archers refused to shoot. You see, in Egypt, it was, a, it was a crime punishable by death if you wounded or killed a cat. And so this turned into a rout for the Persian army. It's too bad the Egyptians didn't have me. I would have mowed all those suckers down without a hint of remorse. Well, today in Joshua 5 and 6, we're going to see some unusual battle tactics And of course, these battle tactics are dictated by God himself. And what we have in Joshua chapter five and six is a picture of the judgment and the salvation of God. Now, you may recall after crossing over the Jordan River, the people of Israel circumcised all the males as they were commanded by the Lord. And then they celebrated the Passover meal commemorating their deliverance from Egypt and slavery. And once all the men were healed, the battle Uh, the assault on Jericho was going to commence. And so you can imagine Joshua, the commander of the army, uh, waiting for this historic day, this battle to commence. And so he goes out one night to take a walk, just kind of to clear his head, to pray, um, to think a little bit. And then much to his surprise, there is a man standing out there with his sword drawn. Now, remember, We learned back in chapter two that after the spies went out and after the the people went out pursuing them, they closed the city up. The gates were shut. No one went in or out. So Joshua must have been quite startled to see a man standing with a drawn sword there in front of him. So Joshua asks him this question. Take a look at this in verse 13. Are you for us or for our adversaries? Well, if that seems odd to you, remember this is taking place at night. Uh, He probably can't see very well. And at any rate, he's commanding this enormous force. He can't be expected to know everybody under his command. And so he asks, are you for us or for our adversaries? Well, the reply of the man surprises us and surely it surprises Joshua as well. Take a look here, what he says. No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Are you for us or for our adversaries? No. Neither. See, this man is the commander of the army of the Lord. And so we tend to think always in terms of good guys and bad guys. 
But what the commander of the army of the Lord is saying is, is he is always on God's side. God is his officer. He is the one who is dictating the commands and giving the orders. And so he is the commander of the Lord's army. He is not on any particular side. But the good news for Joshua in this instance is that the encounter clearly communicates that God is present and with them. You see this because when he encounters this man, what does he tell him to do? Take off your sandals for the ground on which you are standing is holy. Now that same thing happened when the Lord came to Moses at the burning bush. He said, Moses, you need to remove your sandals because the ground that you're standing on is holy. He's saying, I, the Lord, am present here. And and when something is holy, it's set apart. He's saying, this whole area, this, this place is holy because my presence is here. That is what God is communicating to Joshua. My presence is here. My presence is with you. What a powerful moment. Because Joshua is and always had been a man of great faith. But he was a man nonetheless. And as a man, he had the same doubts and fears that you and I have on a regular basis. No doubt he's wondering if God is going to be with them at this pivotal moment in history. So Joshua can go forward in obedient faith, knowing that the Lord and his army are there with them. And if God is with them, it doesn't matter who stands against them. Now, if we look at the outset of chapter six, we have the note that I alluded to a bit earlier that Jericho is completely locked down. And what you have to understand about Jericho, this is one of the oldest cities in the world, but it was an ancient marvel. Its fortifications were so strong and so advanced for the time that everyone in Canaan considered it impenetrable and therefore invincible. It was looked at as this marvel that could not be conquered because of its military strength and because of its fortifications. But look at what God says in verse two. He says, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. So church, the Israelites were not going to take Jericho because they had a great strategy or because they had a superior force or because they had great weapons. No, humanly speaking, it was going to be impossible for Israel to take Jericho, but they could take Jericho because God, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth was giving it to them. Before the battle had even begun, the outcome was already decided provided that Israel continue to obey and to follow the commands of the Lord. And in verses three through five, God lays out the battle plan, if we can even call it such a thing. We see in these verses that the plan is that Israel is going to march around the city once a day for seven days. And on the seventh day, they're going to march around it seven times. While they're doing this, the Ark of the Covenant is going to be with them. Seven priests are going to be blowing seven trumpets made of ram's horns. And then at the end of the march, they're just going to return back to camp and spend the night. But on the seventh day, the priests are going to give a loud blast. Everyone is going to shout and the walls are going to fall down flat, allowing the army to take the city. Now, from a human perspective, this does not seem like a good strategy at all. 
what they are being told to do is essentially to display their entire armed force before the army of Jericho, giving them the opportunity to look at everybody that's going to be fighting against them, the kind of weapons that they have, and giving them a week to prepare for that battle. If they chose to do so, they could have posted archers on top of the wall and they could have just started picking people off as they marched around the city once a day for seven days. Humanly speaking, this is not a good plan. But as we've seen, God does not look at things the way that we look at them because he's not limited in the ways that you and I are limited. I want to remind you what we learned this past fall in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Take a look at the screen. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You see, church, when we fight, our battle is not primarily against flesh and blood. It is a spiritual battle. So we don't fight that battle in conventional ways using conventional methods. We fight the Lord's battles in the Lord's ways because those are the only methods that are going to be successful in a spiritual fight. And what we see here in chapter six is that this battle plan is actually much more like a worship service than it is a military maneuver. I mean, just think about all the things that we see on display in this battle plan. You've got the Ark of the Covenant symbolizing the presence of the Lord. You have the priests marching along with it, the mediators. You have the trumpets that were used to announce the religious festivals in Israel. And you've got the repetition of the number seven over and over and over again, representing completion and perfection, which we first saw in God's creation of the world. So until the final day, all Israel has to do is the same thing that Moses commanded the people to do when the Egyptian army was pursuing them toward the Red Sea. Take a look at Exodus 14. Moses says, the Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. So from the first day to the sixth day, they do the same thing. They wake up, they march around the city blowing the trumpets, they go back to camp, they go to bed. But on the seventh day, that's where the climax of the story is. And so the rest of the chapter zooms in on the action of that last day. So let's pick up now in verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. 
So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. As we said earlier, God's ways are not our ways. And so again, this plan from a human perspective doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would you wake up your troops early, have them march around the city that you're going to fight against seven times in the middle of the day in the Mideastern, Middle Eastern sun before you're going to attack it? It doesn't make any sense. But Joshua and the people obey God. And after they complete the march, Joshua issues two commands to the troops. And I want to highlight that second command first. It's in verse 17. He says in that verse that Rahab and everyone in her house are to be spared because they hid the spies that they sent. Rahab feared the Lord and she acted in faith by aligning her and her family with God and with God's people rather than her own people and her own God's. So she and her family are not to be harmed, and we're going to come back to their situation in just a few minutes. But I want to look in depth right now at the other command that he gives in verse 17, which is that the entire city is to be devoted to destruction. He says, nothing is to be spared except for the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, and those things are going to be deposited into the treasury of the Lord. It's important to note, this is the only time in the entire book of Joshua that a whole city is commanded to be destroyed and that all of the spoils are to be reserved for the Lord. But it makes sense when you think about this, not as a military maneuver, but as a worship service. You might recall that after Israel left Egypt, God began to give his commands to his people. And one of the first commands that he gave to them was the command regarding the first fruits. God said the first fruits of everything belongs to him. So the first fruits of the crops belong to him. If your animals give birth, the first animal that is born belongs to him. Your firstborn belongs to him. And so you redeem it by sacrificing an animal in your child's place. But everything else is given literally and physically to the Lord first. And that's because when we give up what is first, we are saying, God, you are most important. I trust you to take care of me. It does not make sense if you are a poor family with two cows and they finally have a calf, you are dependent on them for your income. It does not make sense to slaughter that young calf and to offer it as a worship offering to the Lord. But what are you doing? You're saying, God, I trust you. I trust you to provide for me. And so in the same way, God is saying the first fruits of this conquest, this city belongs to me. Now, again, from a human perspective, talking conventional wisdom here, this makes no sense at all. If you're going to go into a foreign land, then any military leader will tell you, you've got to have some kind of stronghold. You've got to establish that first. So it makes sense from a military perspective to do as little damage as possible to the town of Jericho, 
Remember, it's this ancient marvel. It's got these huge walls, some 20 feet high, 20 feet thick. That would be a great place to stage the rest of your attacks from. It would ensure that if all those other armies ganged up against you, you had a place to go. It doesn't make sense to burn this place to the ground. And think about this. They have tens of thousands of soldiers and millions of people that all have to be fed every single day. It is not a good strategy to take all of these animals in front of these hungry people and burn them as an offering to the Lord. That does not make sense. But it does make sense if this is a worship service and not a military maneuver. Because what do you do in a worship service? You offer everything to God. I don't want you all to miss what Joshua says in verse 18. I think this is really important, not just because of what happens next week in the seventh chapter, but also because of what's happening right here. He warns the people in verse 18 to keep themselves from the things devoted to destruction. And here's the reason that he gives. Take a look. Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. We've been saying since we started studying this book that when you read Joshua, you can, you can get the impression that they're just kind of going in there and they're taking out all these people. Um, and, and that the, the, the idea is that there's one set of laws and rules for the people who are not God's people. And there's a separate set of rules for God's people. But that's not the case. The people of the land are being judged for their unrepentant sin and rebellion against God. That's why they're being conquered. And in the same way, if Israel disobeys God, if Israel sins against the Lord, if Israel rebels against him, then they are going to experience his discipline and judgment as well. They are going to experience the same consequences because God is no respecter of persons. His law, his perfect holy standard is the same for everyone. Take a look at what David Firth wrote. God is engaging with his enemies through Israel. It is not something that Israel may initiate. Thus, Israel are not attacking Jericho simply because they want to occupy some land. They are attacking a people who are God's enemies with the warning that should Israel transgress the devoted things and claim them for themselves, they too will become God's enemies. So with those commands in place, the action begins in verse 20. The people shout, they blow the trumpets, the wall falls down flat, just as God promised. And this whole section is discussed in Hebrews chapter 11, what we call the hall of faith. Take a look at Hebrews 11. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. How did the walls fall? By faith, not by military strategy, not by military force, not by superior weapons. The walls of Jericho fell by faith. And we see yet another example here that Israel is not exercising what we would call blind faith. They had every reason to trust in God and his word because God had proven himself to them over and over again. 
And so it was by faith that they executed this plan that God came up with to march around the city. And it was by faith that the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. But friends, we can't forget that Rahab, the woman of great faith, is huddled inside of her house with her whole family that is built into the city walls. So let's pick up with her story in verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. I want you to try to imagine the tension of that week for Rahab and her family. They are huddled up inside of their house and they had been huddled up for a full week because the spies had said, if you leave your house and we come and attack, well, then your blood is on your own head. And she didn't know when the attack was coming. And so day after day, they're huddled inside of her little house built into the city wall listening to the army march around the city, blowing the trumpets. And just imagine how they felt when they heard those walls crashing down all around them. They must have thought, this is it. This is it. We thought we were going to be rescued. We thought the spies were going to keep their word. The walls are crashing down all around them. The sound must have been deafening. It must have been a horrifying experience. And then just think to yourself, the unbelievable relief and joy that they must have experienced when those two spies walked through the rubble to her house that was still standing and brought her and all of her family out. What are you going to think about God if you are Rahab and her family? his power, his faithfulness to keep his promises, I mean, that would, that would transform you forever. And that's what they experienced. Rahab and her family were saved from God's judgment upon Jericho because they feared the Lord and trusted in him. Look again at Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. But church, everyone else in Jericho and everything else was devoted to destruction. And then the Israelites burned the city to the ground. 
We talked a few weeks ago when the Israelites crossed the Jordan about how the floodwaters are a picture of God's judgment in scripture. And in the same way, fire is a picture of God's judgment as well. So in the gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is talking about hell and he talks about it often, he compares it to an eternal furnace of fire. And when the apostle John is talking about what he saw, when he saw into hell, he called it the lake of fire. The burning of Jericho, much like the burning of Sodom and Gomorrah, out of which one faithful man and his family were saved, is a sobering reminder of God's judgment that he has in store for any who do not repent and believe in him. What God has saved remains saved forever. And we see that with Rahab and her family. This is just kind of a passing comment here, but it's so fitting that Rahab has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the spies. What God has saved remains saved forever. But what God has destroyed remains destroyed forever, which is why Joshua pronounces a curse on Jericho and on anyone who tries to rise up and rebuild it. He says it would come at the cost of his firstborn and his youngest son. And Jericho, of course, sat for centuries after this as a charred heap of burned ruins. But during the reign of Ahab, which was Israel's most wicked king, there was a man named Hiel who thought that he would try to rebuild Jericho. And who knows why? He may not have been familiar with the stories. They had discarded the word of God long ago. Maybe he thought that God wasn't really serious about this, but we find this in 1 Kings chapter 16. In his days, that's King Ahab's days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Friends, the complete destruction of Jericho and the salvation of Rahab and her family is an illustration and a powerful reminder that God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. As you reflect on your life today, it may be the case that you, like the people of Jericho, have looked elsewhere, not to God and his gospel, but elsewhere for salvation. Like the people of Jericho, maybe you are looking to walls and military strength. For you, it might be your good works. It might be your religious performance, your church attendance the fact that you try to do more good things than bad things. It might be any of those things or other things, but you are looking elsewhere for salvation. But friends, none of those things can save us. Jesus is very clear that it is appointed once for man to die and then we will all be judged. And we will not be judged according to our standards. We will not be judged according to a sliding scale of any kind we will be judged only by the holy and perfect standard of God. None of us meets that standard, but Jesus of Nazareth did. He came because we could not keep God's holy commands. He came and obeyed all of them, fulfilled all of God's righteous law, and then went to the cross as a substitute in your place. 
He died and on the third day he rose from the grave victorious over sin and death so that you and anyone else who trusts in him could have eternal life. And so friends, if you find yourself today trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be the day that you turn from those things and put your faith in him and him alone for salvation. If you're already a Christian, I hope that you will take the opportunity today to reflect through these chapters on the amazing mercy and grace of God. Rahab's rescue from God's judgment, from that fire that burns eternally, is a picture of how every one of us has been rescued from God's judgment because of our sin. And I bet you Rahab and her family never forgot God's deliverance. You can just picture them telling their kids and their grandkids these stories for years to come about how they were rescued by God's grace from those walls falling down around them and from the city being burned to the ground. But I think for many of us, the story of our salvation seems less dramatic because it doesn't involve walls crashing down and it doesn't involve a city being burned. Or maybe it seems less dramatic because we don't have the same past that Rahab has. But friends, we must remember that every testimony, every story of someone coming to faith in Jesus Christ is a miracle because it is the story of someone passing from death to life And it is a story of someone being rescued from the judgment that they rightly deserved to being included in God's family forever. And so today, if you're in that place where where you've just grown cold toward what God has done in your life, then let this be the day that you reflect afresh on all that God has done for you in seeking you, in saving you, in giving you a new heart, in adopting you into his family forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the vivid and frankly, jarring picture that we see this morning in the destruction of Jericho. It is so hard in our fallen flesh for us to conceive that after a life on this earth that all of us are going to experience judgment. And so many have rejected that as a myth, a fable, something that's just designed to scare people into behaving morally. But Father, we see here that it doesn't work as a tactic to scare us into behaving morally because none of us are moral enough for it to matter. All that it does is fix our eyes upon you, the only one who can rescue us from your own judgment. And so we celebrate the fact that you saved Rahab and her family and that you used her to bring Jesus Christ into the world to save us so many years later. 
we pray that for those of us who are already believers, that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation. God, forgive us for growing cold and indifferent toward the gospel. Forgive us for growing cold and indifferent towards your saving work in our life. We pray that you would revive us and restore to us the joy of our salvation so that we could go on in our lives celebrating like Rahab and her family surely did. We thank you, God, this morning for your rescuing grace. We pray that it would motivate us to be sharers of the good news of your salvation in Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from New Life Baptist Church in College Station, Texas. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net.